From RealGhostStoriesOnline.com, it's another episode of Real Ghost Stories Online. Tony and Jenny Bruski joining you once again, thanking you, of course, in advance for letting a friend know about the show. Please, if you like it, do a, uh, do us a little favor. Show a little love out there on Facebook, Twitter, or whatever social media platform uh, you frequent. Pinterest, maybe. Uh, and, and share the show. That's what other uh, folks, uh, that's how they find out about us and how we end up getting more great stories to share with you uh, every single week on the show. And also showing us some love on those platforms as well. iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube. Your uh, two seconds of, uh, of extra support there by pressing uh, the five-star button or uh, writing in a quick little uh, snippet of what you think of the show uh, greatly, greatly, greatly helps us. So if you wouldn't mind uh, spending two seconds in doing that for us, uh, we greatly appreciate it. We spend uh, several hours a week putting these shows together for you. So uh, a little thank you in return would be greatly appreciated. Uh, on today's show, we uh, are going to uh, cover a topic uh, of a new movie that's coming out, uh, Annabelle. Uh, and we're going to share the real story. Of, of Annabelle and I want to say this I'm working on trying to get an interview on this on the topic with uh, with someone who has a bit more expertise on on it but for now I thought uh, we can just cover with the information that uh, that does exist out there because what gets me about what I've seen in the preview for that Annabelle movie is it doesn't look all that based on the real story yeah and I don't really I mean, I, it looks like it's going to be a good movie, but The Conjuring was pretty well based on The con- on uh, the House of Darkness, House of Light, or really more so what the Warrens' uh, experience were, was. Um, this Annabelle, I mean, it's the same producer and creator and all that, but eh, I don't know. I'm kind of disappointed. I, I, I shouldn't say that for sure. I haven't seen the movie yet or anything, but... Um, I, I'm thinking as a lot of folks are getting so excited about seeing it, let's get everyone up to date on what the real story is. And we'll get it straight um, from the uh, the New England uh, Paranormal Society's uh, website, uh, uh, which is what the, the Warrens are part of. Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit. Okay. okay. In that case, we got some calls. We got some other great ghost stories for you today on the show. So stick around. We got some good stuff uh, coming your way. Today, with Real Ghost Stories Online. If you have a real ghost story, you can call into us 24 hours a day, uh, seven days a week, 855-853-4802, 855-853-4802 is the phone number to dial in, and you just uh, leave us your ghost story. We may play it back in a future episode. Of course, you can write it to us on our website at realghoststoriesonline.com. So, to get the show started, should we talk about Annabelle? Yeah, let's do that. What, uh, what is your knowledge of uh, of the subject of Annabelle. I know very little other than at the very beginning of The Conjuring there's the creepy doll. Yep. And the five minutes of The Conjuring that I saw, that was it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and, and really it's funny because within The Conjuring that was almost kind of like a premise of these people investigate paranormal instances. Annabelle really had nothing to do with the with the Conjuring case. Right. Um it's it's curious as to how it was brought in there or why it was brought in there. I'm guessing it was brought in there with the mindset of, hey, if we splice this little bit of this other story in here, we have a follow-up movie. Yeah, I'm thinking that's probably exactly what they did. But I'm, I heard they're also working on a Conjuring Two, which how do you do that? I don't. How do you? That's do where that? it's that's where it's like Amityville Two or Amityville Three, and they were just like even more far fetched. Yeah. You know, so. 
Uh, here's a story of Animal. This is, um, this is like I said, this is coming uh, from the Warrens. This is coming from the, uh, the New England Paranormal Society. This is just uh, direct from them. So this is what uh, the real story of Annabelle is. So make note in your mind when you see the movie. You can tell your friends, no, here's what really happened. And your friends will throw popcorn at you saying, shut up and watch the movie. Uh, here he goes. In 1970, a mother purchased an antique Raggedy Ann doll from a hobby store. There's difference number one right there, because in the movie, it's this creepy ass looking doll. I'm guessing Raggedy Ann just wasn't going to pass. So anyhow, continue. Does everybody know what a Raggedy Ann looks like? It's the one with the red yarn hair. You I think know. everyone knows what Raggedy Ann, don't they? I don't know. I suppose young people may not. Yeah, because it's kind of an older toy. We were my, maybe the last generation that would play with a Raggedy Ann. There's, I haven't seen one in a store. No, either ever. have I. There was a Raggedy Ann Saturday morning cartoon in, in the 80s. Oh, really? When we were kids. But I think that was probably the end of it. But okay. Yeah. It's a Raggedy Ann doll. Uh, the doll was a present for her daughter, Donna, on her birthday. Donna, at the time, was a student in college preparing to graduate with her nursing degree and resided in a tiny apartment with her roommate, Angie, a nurse as well. And this is, I think, what was portrayed. This part here was portrayed in The Conjuring. Uh, Pleased with the doll, Donna placed it on her bed as a decoration and didn't give it a second thought until a few days later. Within that time, both Donna and Angie noticed that there appeared to be something very strange and creepy about the doll. The doll apparently moved on its own, relatively unnoticeable movements at first, like a change in position, but as time passed, the movement became more noticeable. Donna and Angie would come home to find the doll in a completely different room from which they had left it. Sometimes the doll would be found cross-legged on the couch with its arms folded. Other times it was found upright, standing on its feet, leaning against the chair in the dining room. Several times Donna was placing the doll on the couch before leaving work and would return home to find the doll back in her room on the bed with the door closed. Annabelle the doll may not... Uh, the doll not only move, but would actually write as well. But a month into their experiences, Donna and Angie began to find penciled messages on parchment paper reading, Help us and help Lou. The handwriting looked to belong to that of a small child. The creepy part about the message was not the wording, but the way they were written. At the time, Donna had never kept parchment paper on which the notes were written in the house. So where did that come from? One night, Donna came home to find the doll had moved again. This time, it was on her bed. Donna had come to find that this was typical of the doll, but somehow she knew this time it was different. Something wasn't right. A sense of fear came over her when she inspected the doll and saw what looked like blood drops on the back of its hands in its chest, seemingly from nowhere. A liquidy red substance had appeared on the doll. Scared and desperate, Donna and Angie decided it was time to seek expert advice. Not knowing where to turn, they contacted a medium... And a seance was held. Donna was then introduced to the spirit of Annabelle Higgins. The medium related the story to Annabelle to both Donna and Angie. Annabelle was a young girl that resided on the property before the apartment was built. There were happy times. She was a young girl of only seven years old when her lifeless body was found in the field upon which the apartment complex now stands. The spirit related to related to the medium. Uh, that she felt comfort with Donna and Angie and wanted to stay with them and be loved. Feeling compassion for Annabelle and her story, Donna gave her permission to inhibit the doll and stay with them. They were soon to find out, however, that Annabelle was not what she appeared to be. This is no ordinary case and definitely no ordinary doll. Lou was friends with Donna and Angie and had been with them since the day the doll arrived. Lou had never 
been fond of the doll and on several occasions warned Donna that it was evil and to get rid of it. Donna had a compassionate tie to the doll and not giving much credence to Lou's feelings kept it. Donna's decision turned out to be a terrible mistake. Lou awoke one night from a deep sleep in the panic. Once again, he had a reoccurring bad dream, only this time somehow something seemed different. It was as though he was awake but couldn't move. He looked around the room but couldn't discern anything out of the ordinary, and then it happened. Looking down towards his feet, he saw the doll, Annabelle. Began to slowly glide up his leg, move over his chest, and then stopped. Within seconds, the doll was strangling him. Paralyzed and gasping for breath, Lou, at the point of asphyxiation, blacked out. Lou awoke the next morning, certain it wasn't a dream. Lou was determined to rid himself of that doll and the spirit that possessed it. Lou, however, would have one more terrifying experience with Annabelle. Preparing for a road trip the next day, Lou and Angie were reading over maps alone in her apartment. The apartment seemed eerily quiet. Suddenly, rustling sounds came from Donna's room that aroused fear that someone had possibly broken into the apartment. Lou, determined to figure out who or what it was, quietly made his way to the bedroom door. He waited for the noises to stop before entering and turning on the light. The room was empty except for Annabelle, whom was tossed on the floor in the corner. Lou scoured the room but for forced entry, but nothing was out of place. But as he got close to the doll... He got the distinct impression that somebody was behind him. Spinning around, he was quick to realize that nobody else was there. Then in the flash, he found himself grabbing for his chest, doubled over, cut and bleeding. His shirt was stained with blood, and upon opening his shirt there on his chest was what looked like to be seven distinct claw marks, three uh, three vertically and four horizontally. All were hot like burns. These scratches healed almost immediately, half gone the next day, fully gone by day two. Donna finally was willing to believe the spirit in the house was not that of a young girl, but inhuman and demonic in nature. After Lou's experiences, Donna felt it was time to seek real expert advice and contacted Episcopal priest named Father Hagen. Father Hagen felt it was a spiritual matter, and he felt he needed to contact a higher authority in the church, so he contacted Father Cook, who immediately contacted the Warrens. Ed and Lorraine Warren immediately took interest in the case and contacted Donna concerning the doll. The Warrens, after speaking with Donna, Angie, and Lou, came to the immediate conclusion that the doll itself was not, in fact, possessed, but manipulated by an inhuman presence. Spirits possess inanimate objects like houses or toys. They possess people. An inhuman spirit can attach itself to a place or object. That is what occurred in the Annabelle case. The spirit manipulated the doll and created the illusion of it being alive in order to get recognition. Truly, the spirit was not looking to stay attached to the doll. It was looking to possess a human host. The spirit, or in this case, an inhuman demonic spirit, was essentially in the infestation stage of the phenomenon. It first began moving the doll around the apartment by means of teleportation to arouse the occupant's curiosity in hopes that they would give it recognition. Then, predictably, the mistake of bringing in a medium into the apartment to communicate with it, the inhuman spirit now had to communicate through the medium. Then preyed on the girl's emotional vulnerabilities by pretending to be a rather harmless, lost young girl, with which, during the seance, was allowed permission from Donna to haunt the apartment. So this is where they granted permission. It's not like it just could have done all this on its own. The, the people actually had to say, yes, you can come haunt us. Okay. 
so it was granted permission. Uh, and so far as demonic is a negative spirit, it then set about causing uh, patently negative phenomena to occur. It aroused fear through weird movements of the doll. It brought about the materialization of disturbing handwritten notes, the symbolic drops of blood in the doll, and ultimately it even attacked Lou, leaving behind the symbolic mark of the beast. The next stage of the infestation phenomenon would have been complete human possession. Had these experiences lasted another two or three more weeks, the spirit would have completely possessed, if not haunted or killed, one of the occupants in the house. At the conclusion of the investigation, the Warrens felt it appropriate to have a uh, recitation of an exorcism blessing by Father Cook to cleanse the apartment. The Episcopal blessing of the home is wordy, seven-page document that is distinctly positive in nature. Rather than specifically expelling evil entities from the dwelling, the emphasis is instead directed towards filling the home with the power of the positive of a God. At Donna's request... And as a further precaution against the phenomenon ever occurring in the home again, the Warrens took the big rag doll along with them when they left. Father Cook, although uncomfortable with his role as an exorcist, agreed to perform the seven-page rite of exorcism, a doctrine he recited through the apartment, at which point the Warrens were confident the entity would no longer re- reside there. They agreed to take the rag doll back home with them upon Ed placed the doll in the back seat of his car and agreed he would not take the interstate in the event the inhuman spirit still resided in the doll. His suspicions were all too correct, and in no time the Warrens felt themselves as the object of a vicious hatred. Then, at each dangerous curve, the car swerved and stalled at every other corner, causing the power and steering brakes to fail. Repeatedly, the car verged on collision. Ed reached into the back seat into his black bag and took out a vial of holy water and doused the doll, making the sign of the cross over it. The the disturbances stopped immediately, and the Warrens arrived safely home. After the Warrens arrived home, Ed sat the doll in a chair next to his desk. The doll levitated a number of times in the beginning, then it seemed to fall inert. During the ensuing weeks, however, it began showing up in various rooms of the house. When the Warrens were away and had the, they had the doll locked up in the outer office building, they would often return to find it sitting comfortably upstairs in Ed's easy chair when they opened the main door. The doll also showed a hatred for clergymen who came into the house. In one instance, Father Jason Bradford, a Catholic exorcist, came into the house. Upon seeing the doll seated in the chair, he picked it up and said, You're just a rag doll, Annabelle. You can't hurt anyone. And tossed the doll back in the chair, at which point Ed exclaimed, That's one thing you better not say. Upon leaving the house later, Lorraine, Lorraine pleaded with the priest to please be careful driving and to call her when he arrived home. Lorraine discerned tragedy for this young priest, but he had to go his way. A few hours later, Father Jason called Lorraine and explained that his brakes had failed and he, as he entered a busy intersection. He was involved in a near-fatal accident destroying his vehicle. Just one of the many events that occurred over the next few years. The Warrens had a special case built for Annabelle inside their occult museum where she resides to this day. Since the case was built, Annabelle no longer appeared to move, but she is thought to be responsible for the death of a young man who came to the museum on a motorcycle with his girlfriend. The young man, after hearing Ed's account of the doll, defiantly went up and began to bang on the case, insisting that if the doll can put scratches on people, then he wanted to also be scratched. Ed said to put to the young man, Son, you need to leave, and put him out of the building. 
On the way home, the young man and his girlfriend were laughing and making fun of the doll when he lost control of his motorcycle and went head-on into a tree. The young man was killed instantly, and the girlfriend survived and was hospitalized for over a year. When asked what happened, the young woman explained that they were laughing about the doll when they lost control of the motorcycle. Ed warns, you do not challenge evil that no man is more powerful than Satan. And that's the story of Annabelle, kids. Wow, that makes me want to think twice about doing Elf on the Shelf at Christmas. <laughs> Elf on the Shelf is not evil. No, but seriously, it sounds like, I mean, the first part, you know, where the doll's doing little things and writing well, little notes. But we do that with the doll. Well, I know, but it that's where my mind went with it. It's like a demonic Elf on the Shelf. Well, here, if your Elf on the Shelf started doing that stuff on its own, yes, I agree. That would be kind of scary. Yeah. Anyway, we could do an, we should do an Annabelle for Halloween. No, we could get a Raggedy Ann doll, and thirty days leading up to Halloween, we have Raggedy Ann or Annabelle in different positions around the house, just like Elf on the Shelf. No, I don't think so. I smell a huge marketing opportunity here. Wow, I think that's asking <laughs> for trouble. Yeah, I do too. I mean, do you think if you try to emulate a case like this, like we're literally, if you took a Raggedy Ann doll, named it Annabelle, and kind of mocked it. I mean, you, you having never had contact with Annabelle or anything of the sort other than just knowing the story, do you think that could conjure something up just by almost, almost kind of poking fun at it, you know, from that sort of a... This show is proof that stranger things have happened. Yeah, that's true. So I would say I'm not going to. It's even almost like do you're that. you're inviting evil in. Yes. By by pretending oh and telling the kids oh yeah yeah because one of these what would happen is you, you'd start doing it the first couple nights you would be setting it up and then you'd set it up one night and then you go out the next morning and it's set up in a completely different position than what you left it. Yeah, I'm no, yeah. I think it's a bad deal. Yeah, I think you're probably right. But I, what I don't understand is why they felt the need to do a whole different Annabelle story. Because you can't, in my opinion, you can't be a good true story. And this sounds like plenty to do a whole movie from. I don't know, because honestly, I think a lot of this was explained in like the first 20 minutes of The Conjuring. Yeah. The, almost the entire story was spelled out. So I'm wondering if they just kind of almost essentially blew it the first time uh, with The Conjuring because they got through that whole thing where really it was almost, that should have had its own movie. Yeah. I don't really understand why it was put out in like these two stories in the one movie that were completely unrelated. I get kind of setting up showing, hey, it's a spooky story, but The Conjuring itself was scary enough. Was it maybe to try and and bring some notoriety to... To the film? I mean... I don't know. I mean, I... Because Annabelle was also a fairly unknown... It was? Okay. You know, unless you're really into it, okay. you know, paranormal stuff, you wouldn't have really known about it. But I don't know. Um, and the way that The Conjuring ended was, uh, it was... Uh, Ed got a call from uh, someone in upstate New York about a, a case they were supposed to go and investigate, which turned out to be Amityville. I think that could be an interesting movie. Their, their take on the Amityville. Yeah. Not necessarily, um, you know, the same old Amityville story that we've heard in the book and that we saw in the first movie, but more so what the Warrens 
take was on it because they actually what happened was they were involved in a seance in the home uh, after the uh, the whole incident occurred. Um, I believe. Um, uh, oh gosh, what's the dad's name? George. George. George Lutz was was present for that as well, um, and there were some reporters present um, as well. And this is when the ghost boy picture was taken. You've seen the ghost right. boy picture, haven't you? Yeah. Little boy looking over the railing with the glowing eyes. Or or a adult kneeling down with glasses on. Yeah, that was the other account of that. Where did we hear that was? Oh, that was the account that the, the documentarian had on that. Yeah. Um, of that. Yeah, there was a lot of cases on that. I still think it looks like a ghost boy. I think so. I think there's a lot of people that, that look at that and go, that's, I don't somebody else I don't know but um, it would be interesting to see a movie done about that seance that was that happened um, and just what their take was on it mm-hmm. you know you can get through the, the story of the movie pretty quick and don't focus on it and make it a more factual Amityville movie for the first time ever have more of the real true story being told because it is a scary-ass tale when you are basing it on what the facts are. It's one of those stories that doesn't necessarily need a lot of embellishment. Right. You know? Yeah, I agree. And I think that's the case here, too. Yeah. I, I do want to... I, I, that being said, though, I still do want to see the Annabelle movie. But from what I've seen in the preview, uh looks like nothing is related to the reality of the situation or the story. So... Wow. It is what it is. 855-853-4802. If you have a real ghost story, 855-853-4802. To share your real ghost story with us, we would absolutely love to hear it. Let's go to a caller. Hi, you're on Real Ghost Stories Online. Hi, Tony. This is Beatrice. Um, I'm calling again with another couple of ghost stories. These did happen uh, to me. Uh, once again, they take place in Guatemala, Central America. And this time around, I'll probably have to call a couple of times to get them all in. I want to tell you uh, the stories that happened on the college campus I went to law school at. It's um, a private university. I'm not going to say the name because it would be recognizable as anyone from that country would listen to the show. Uh, Basically, it was a very new university, the building. When I went to school there, it was only, the university as such was only 35 years old. And the concept the founders had for the building was very ecological. They didn't want to touch much of the surroundings and they actually built or wound up building the whole campus in a ravine and um, it's, it's a very interesting building because it's it's basically two buildings with a little Japanese garden uh, in the middle with uh, a fish pond the little walking trails and the first building is um, from floor one to four and the second building goes up from floor three to seven and seven is actually the faculty parking lot um i guess a little backstory to this is that when they bought this property back in the 70s i'm assuming the civil war 
uh, that was going on in Guatemala was going strong. Um, by the time I was in school, I started school there, college, in 1986. Um, Civil War was winding down, but still, every Monday, you would have the police and the authorities over at the provisional campus wanting to speak to the school's administrator because they had found bodies dumped in the ravine where later um, the campus would be built. So it has a lot of violent history, the ravine, if, if we could say that. I don't know if the people whose bodies were found there were actually executed there or it was just a big old dumping ground. The university campus was finally ready to be used in the second semester of 1987. And five years later, uh, you do the math, the library was finally open, this huge library that was previously being housed on the first floor of the first building and it was really cramped, but they built this humongous four-story building for the library and, and it was the biggest in its class back in the early 90s, late 80s. So it was a beautiful library. And since this is pre-internet uh, stages, we still had the audio-visual equipment that would be dragged into classrooms. And in this library housed the audiovisual room, which everyone would joke that was under seven doors and seven locks and keys. But what was really true was that the only people who had the keys to the audiovisuals were the librarian, the director, and the guy who was in charge of the audiovisuals. My college boyfriend got a part-time job at the library. So I got this first-handed, first-hand from him. When they opened up the library, you know, big cocktail and grand opening, the next day when the guy who's in charge of the audiovisuals unlocked the seven locks and the seven doors to get to the equipment he had to take to the other building, he found a puddle of what looked like blood. Now, this is the audiovisual room. There's no windows, no other door than the one he came through. And like I said before, only two people had had the key to that. So they did call authorities. They did take samples, and it was human blood. Um, no one up to this day, no one knows how the blood got there. And I really never heard if blood reappeared in that area ever again. So that, that was really strange. But by then, um, I was already start studying to pass my bar exam down there. And I was cramming along with uh, a friend who had been in school a year before me. And we had gotten special authorization from the school. It was a small, it was a small school. It still is by, by the standards. To use a classroom when the library closed Saturday afternoon and to be able to use a classroom to study in on Sundays. And uh, we would get, I mean, we were doing a really hard schedule from eight in the morning until 10 at night. We would just break for, for food 
And sometimes, well, we would get bored of studying inside the classroom and we would sit outside in the hallways, but it was an open-faced building so you could enjoy the Japanese garden down in the middle. And we would watch the elevators just turn on by themselves without anyone actually pressing a button in any floor. And from where we were sitting, we could see the elevator from the third floor all the way up to the seventh floor. And these elevators would do this little dance. They would open and close. They would go up and down, open and close. No one would get in. No one would get out. So we actually reported this to the school authorities, and uh, they didn't believe us. But then there were also some med students, medicine students, who were using the fifth floor. They were studying for, I think, a Stillman scholarship or something like that. And they started reporting it. So one of the authorities stayed a weekend uh, after hours with us, and she got to see the elevator do its little dance. They called the elevator repair people the next week, and they found nothing wrong with the elevators except saying that it was technically or mechanically impossible for the elevators to be moving on their own if no one was pressing the buttons calling them from different floors. And... Um, I have no idea if, if that still goes on, but the big story I want to tell you is, is one that happened to me, and I knew I got haunted in retrospect. Uh, so it was around, I'm going to say, fall, winter, although there is no seasons down there. It's always spring, but it would qualify as fall, winter. There were these two young pre-med students um, who were using another classroom on the sixth floor where my friend and I were using a classroom. And it was really hilarious because they would party every night, Monday to Friday, and then they would get their classmates' notes, cram all weekend for the quizzes on Monday. So they basically told us that some nights they were sleeping in the classroom over the weekend just to cram for the tests. I walked in on a Sunday and our classroom, the one my friend and I were using, was full of debris. It had soda bottles, it had half-eaten nachos, it had a bunch of, of leftovers from food, food wrappers, and since it was our compromise to keep the classroom clean and orderly or else we weren't, weren't gonna get the authorization to use it, I was extremely angry. I marched down the hall to where I knew these kids were, and uh, I accused them. Did you guys leave a mess in, in the classroom we're using? And they were not really happy, not because I was accusing them, but they said, yeah, we're sorry. We thought we were going to have time to clean it up, but, you know, we're still, we're still scared. What are you scared of? So they basically told me that the previous night, which would have been Saturday night, they, one of them was drifting off to sleep under the blackboard and the other one was sitting in a desk or a little tables and it had to be around uh, 10 or 11 o'clock at night. Every floor on both buildings have bathrooms at the end of the hallway, a ladies room and a gentleman's room and they're both side by side. The second floor of the first building, which is the administrative floor, 
um, the bathroom, the ladies' room there, is very small because there's no classrooms on that floor. So it basically has two stalls, uh, two sinks, and uh, that's it. The security guards, once we start with my friend, we started talking to them if anything strange had happened to them, told us the story. And I did confirm it with the old people, well, not the old people, but the old employees who are no longer there. They've retired since. And it was basically that there was a secretary using the facilities in one of the stalls. and She felt she was being watched. You're in a stall. Where can you be watched from? Either from underneath the stall or from above it. So she's basically looking down and there's nothing weird happening there and she looks up and peering over the top of the next stall, there's an old man. Now, the toilet is in the middle of the stall. So the guy would have had to been over, I'm gonna say six feet or seven feet to be able to peer over the top of the stall because if you stand on the toilet, you couldn't be right next to the stall. The toilet's on the middle, in the middle. So she screamed, and uh, she ran out of the ladies' room, I think, with her panties halfway up. I mean, it was this big scandal. And uh, they rushed in, and they didn't see anything. And then after this occurred, security guards would report that when they were doing their tour of campus, they would, for example, be on the second building on the sixth floor of the second building and remember since it's open faced they can see all the way to the first building because of the open garden in the middle and they would see an old man walking through the hallway of the second floor of the first building they would radio and they would rush to the second to the first building and by the time they got there the old man would be walking through the hall of the sixth floor of the second building Needless to say, up to this day, that bathroom on the second floor of the first building, the ladies' room, is locked. And uh, when I've told this story to students um, who are there currently, I've always invited them to go check out to see if the bathroom is locked, and it is. So basically, the, the, the campus is haunted. I know that. It's... Uh, it's a beautiful campus. It's like I said, they, they didn't tear down any trees but those that were necessary. The, the, it's beautiful gardens and all that. But what is true is that it was a dumping ground, if not an execution ground, during the Civil War. And there were a lot of bodies that had to be um, recognized or identified and picked up from that ravine. Uh, to this day and uh, when it was being built the people who were the construction workers did report that they would find a lot of garments um, female garments male garments undergarments just thrown about with blood and stuff so well that's my story and I hope to be able to either write or call in again with stories from another part of that city um, the city is very haunted. It's, it was built, all Guatemala City was built over Caminal Huyu, which is a Mayan uh, burial ground. And my home is actually built 
upon the ceremonial section of Caminal Huyu, and my house is surrounded by the temples, which they thought were temples, but they're actual graves, those little pyramids. So I've got a couple of stories of those. Well, thank you very much. I'm sorry it was so long, and I may not be the best storyteller, but thanks a lot for listening. Bye-bye. Yeah, I think anytime you build your house on uh, sacred ground or uh, burial grounds or battlegrounds or really any sort of grounds where there's maths, mass death involved at any point in history, probably a good recipe for bad shit to start happening. I have a question. Yeah. Okay, so the ghost of the old man was doing some questionable things as a ghost. Is that because he was that kind of person in life, or is that something taking on a, you know, a personification of a, a harmless old man? That's always interesting when you have the perverted ghost going on. Mm-hmm. You know, it makes you wonder if if uh, it is something that maybe the human did in life, or it's just a dark. I don't know, because usually when these things are are like this and it's a fairly dark spirit, it's never really anything good. And it's just trying to almost, in my opinion, I think, get into situations that make people uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah, What do you think? I could see it going either way. I could see it being somebody that did that in their life. But then I could also see, oh, you see an old man. Oh, no big deal. And then it's, it's okay. You can look over the No, spell. no. I just mean just like when they would man. see him wandering through the other building, you Bad know. Bad grandpa. Bad <laughs> grandpa. <Yeah>. Yes, exactly. <laughs> no, I just, I wonder if, if it's a demonic presence that's taking that as its form. I kind of get that feeling about a lot of stories from that area. Yeah. That it's never really anything all that good. Yeah. I just, a lot of them always seem to be fairly dark. I, I, I never... You, you rarely hear the story in that area. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we'll get a story. But you never really hear, as far as what I've seen or heard, of, you know, the kindly old ghost grandmother that's looking over the children. Yeah, you're right. You know, that, I don't know why that is. I don't know the reason. Because when there are those deaths and those mass graves and all that horrible things, those were normal people once, too. So I don't know why so much of it is seemingly, like, demonic, but it seems to be, for whatever reason. Insight, anyone? You're, you're welcome to, to throw it our way, and I'd love to hear it. Okay, and granted, I'm, I'm the rookie here. Is it because such a huge act of evil was committed in killing all those people there? Sure, but then why would there not be, you know, at least some normalcy, if you will, if you consider a ghost normal, you know, a, a human spirit normal, you know, haunting the area. Why, why don't? Why isn't there more of that that we're hearing? Or maybe there are. Maybe there are. We just don't hear about it because they're the fairly harmless ones, and the ones that are getting the attention are the real evil, dark things that are going on. You know? I mean, I could see it kind of almost being like, hey, what's the worst, you know, out of the top ten ghost stories you had this week? Because... If you're having a lot of crap going on, I'm guessing the dark spirits kind of rank a lot higher than the poltergeist that's moving your water glass around the living room or something, you know, something right. like that. Right. Now, I was just wondering if if something that happens that has that much evil attached mm-hmm. to it, if that can conjure up something demonic. I could see. 
I mean, I'm wondering if you know, when you have those dark things, you know, if something evil hadn't already been conjured up that caused That's true. those things to begin with, and now it's still living on, essentially in the uh, you know the, the aftermath of those situations. Eight five five eight five three forty eight zero two is our phone number to call in. Eight five five eight five three forty eight zero two. Leo writes in, "Hi Tony, I'm just trying to share what I was told regarding one of the stories you read. It's the one about the grandfather watching over the grandmother that couldn't hear. Anyway, I was told by my friend clairvoyant that when we die, we either go to heaven or hell, or we're reincarnated, or we come back as a guardian angel. Now the last part made sense to me. Maybe." The grandfather is watching over the grandmother. Also, he told me that my soul is an old soul, which makes sense in a way. I think that there... Uh, the way I think is that uh, I have a Frank Sinatra station on my Pandora app, and some of the songs sound familiar to me. When I first created the station, I started hearing a song from Nat King Cole, Louis Armstrong. When some of the songs would come on, I got a weird feeling. It's hard to describe, but it's like I knew the song, but didn't know the lyrics. I remember my fiancé asked me how I know these songs, but I have no clue. I don't remember hearing the music ever in my life. My parents are from Mexico, so I was brought up listening to Spanish music. Anyway, I just thought I would share that with you. By the way, the other night I was listening to your episode on my phone. I was 20 minutes into the show, and it just restarted on its own coincidence. Who knows? Thanks for your time. I'll share more stories in the future due to time. Thanks for your time. Maybe he's, maybe it's a past life that he's having memories of. Or maybe he just really innately likes Frank Sinatra music. I mean, I don't. I don't know. Have you? If, if, he, if he went into the story saying, I know the lyrics to these songs. I'd be like, okay. Hey. You got a case. There are songs from our lifetime that we were like, yeah, I remember that song. I couldn't tell you what all the lyrics are, but you remember it. Sure. When you hear it, you know how the how the music goes. You maybe not know all the words. Sure, there's a lot of songs from the '90s. I still don't understand the words. I can't hear it because it's you just all sing screaming. your own version of it. it yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm. I could go either way on that. I mean, it, it's an interesting observation that you know he has this interesting um, sense of being drawn to the music and not having it uh, having been something that he grew up around, which is what normally you could kind of attribute some of those things back to where you go, I really like this music and I don't know why. Oh, your parents listen to it obsessively around you when you're in the crib. But if that's not what happened, it is interesting that he um, does have that connection. Mm-hmm. You know, so I won't completely discount it. I, I Although I, I do think music is an interesting thing. I think you can be easily drawn to certain things that you may have never heard before. And it may have nothing to do with previous life. It's just certain things speak to different certain people in, in different ways and they just kind of discover it. And but how do you know it doesn't have anything to do with the previous life? I'm not saying I don't. I'm just saying I don't know that that is it either. Because I know there's things that I'm drawn to that I'm, I have no reason to be drawn to them. It does not fit anything. Like Titanic? That's one thing. Yeah. But there are some other things that, and it's like, why would a 30-something be drawn to this at all? I don't know. Um, I always kind of wonder that with Titanic, though, myself. Because, I mean, here's, I don't know, to our listeners. As children, we were both obsessed with Titanic. And we grew up in completely different states, didn't know each other. Um, But we found out later in life that we had this obsession with Titanic as children. Yes. Um, And I I was into it, deeply into it, um, 
you know, at a very young age, you know, like first grade, second grade, third grade. And I was drawing pictures of the ship sinking. I mean, it's all stuff I'd seen on, on movies or in books, but I would go to the library and that's all I wanted to get books on. I don't know why I was obsessed with it. I don't. I still really enjoy the topic and I'm very interested in it, but I don't know why, why I was drawn to it as a first grader. Did you ever dream about it? Did you ever dream that you were on the ship? Not that I recall, no. I did. I really? did a lot. And I, I, have va- I have very vivid dreams where I'm on the ship and it's going down. And I don't remember having loved ones with me. But I remember, I remember getting into the water. And I don't remember anything after that. I wake up after that. Hmm. This is, this is keep in mind, pre-movie, right? Yes, yes. We're talking, this is the very early 90s. Because yes. we're both very young. Um, after I, I, you know, immediately was drawn to it once I heard about it for the first time. And I forget this kid in my class, he was the mean kid and he brought this up and, and, and I went home and asked about what it was. And my mom gave me the, the nice sugar coated explanation or the very quick version of it was a big ship and a lot of people died and all the ponies survived. No. and, And then, so I wanted to start learning about it and through National Geographic and some other things I learned mm-hmm. about it and then I became obsessed about it yeah. and I started having dreams to where I was on the ship mm-hmm. what was interesting about the topic is when we, we had a chance to hear Robert Ballard speak about it he said that the, the most one of the most shocking things about his exploration and when he found the Titanic was the influx of mail and letters that he would get from kids mm-hmm. our age at the time you know, who were elementary students who had this fascination with it which is really interesting yeah for whatever reason you know the children of the you know mid to late 80s were really fascinated with that when they when he discovered it and i mean i know it was a national geographic i remember looking at that issue i can picture that issue I can yeah the special i know the fold out where yeah. it showed the size compared to buildings and that why we were with. also fascinated with it i don't know i mean I didn't know anybody else in my school who had that fascination, but I was very interested to hear that, I mean, not only you, obviously, when we discovered that, but that there was all these other kids, you know, randomly that had this interest in it. But I have to say, you are the only other person that has ever, that I've ever come across that's ever appreciated that obsession as much as I have, or was that obsessed with it as much as I was. Do you think it's a past life thing? I've wondered it. I don't. I don't even want to open that can have, of worms. I have. I've never had anything where I've ever felt. And I'm not dismissing the past life thing at all. So don't don't take it like that. I'm just saying that I personally have never had anything where I have any recollections of a past life or feel like I was from a different era or anything. I could see some different eras where I think I would have fit in pretty well and really enjoy like some of the styles and some of the culture of different eras. But I've never like been. Oh my God! I felt like I've, you know, been there or right. a part of it. Um, I, I've just felt you know kind of drawn and interested more than like wow, and this I, is me. I don't want to go so far as to say it's a past life thing. I I think it's inexplicable why I'm so drawn to it. Mm-hmm. I don't understand that, and I don't understand why I can dream vividly. I can navigate my way around that ship trying to stay out of the water I don't know it, it's it's very very strange and that's why I think part of it was such an emotional experience when we went to the museum and uh, we saw the artifacts that came out of the water 
I'm going to ask you this because I know our listeners are, are thinking this in their head and they're going to want to ask you this. In your dream, do you recall uh, your the imaginary friend that was essentially dressed like the era in it? No, I don't. Okay. In the dream, I'm Probably always... Probably two separate totally. Things. In the dream, I'm always alone. Okay. I just thought I'd ask because yeah. of the, the era that you said that you saw him... You know, his clothing and style does kind of fit that. I think he was later than okay. that. I think that he was, you know, not a lot later, but I think he was later than that. Okay. But no, I, for whatever reason, I, I don't ever feel sad. I'm not looking for family or anything. I'm always by myself. Interesting. And I don't think I make it. I really don't. I think I'm one of those women that, that didn't get on the boat. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Hmm. 855-853-4802 is the phone number to call in if you have a real ghost story or would love to profess your obsession with Titanic to us as well. We'll make us feel... Less dorky. Less That'd dorky. be great. Another letter uh, coming in to us. This is from Ivan. Ivan says, it all started in a small town in York, South Carolina. I just moved into a huge house. It looked like it had been built in the 1800s. It was nice, but it was really, what was really nice about it was the size of it. It's one of the biggest houses in the neighborhood. I was in the seventh grade, and every day after school, me and my little brother would play basketball. In the backyard, there was a basketball court and a bunch of woods behind the basketball court, so we'd always play till dark. On a particular day, we went out to play. Everything was going good till I took a shot at the basket, and I got the rune from rune. It bounced into the woods. I don't know what rune from rune is, but it's a... Is rune from rune, R-U-I-N from R-U to the, got got the rune from the ruin. It bounced out into the, I don't know, continuing on. Now, from done apparent reason, I had rarely gone back there inside the woods, even in the daylight. I found it creepy and now even more creepier since I had got the ball at night. It was a must that I get it because we had to finish the game off, so I quickly went into the woods and scanned around for the ball. I got to pick it up. I'm lifting the ball. I decided to look up, and what I saw turned me stone cold. It was a misty figure of a ghost. I could see him so clearly, though. It was like someone had a flashlight, a light behind him because he had a bright white glow. He was an elderly man. He stood, he stood straight up at curly white hair that hung to his ears. He also had a full and squinty eyes and a very particular suit on. He was wearing an American Civil War jacket with big buttons and he had medals on it. I could not see the bottoms he was wearing because they were not there. Only his torso was visible. I stared at him for about ten seconds till... I was able to move. He began to open his mouth as to say something, but as soon as he did, I ran away so fast in my house, my heart was beating so loud. So I felt I was going to pop out of my chest. While I ran to the house, I hadn't even noticed that I had ran past my little brother. He came in with a basketball in his hands and asked why I had dropped it as I ran past him and ran into the house. I told him I saw a ghost, but he didn't believe me. Later, we ended up moving to North Carolina. And as the days went by, I couldn't sleep. I was having trouble sleeping. One day, I woke up around 3 a.m. I opened my eyes and found myself in my room, and everything was peaceful. I looked around on the floor and saw where I had put my soccer ball before I went to sleep. Suddenly, I started hearing this loud ringing sound in the distance. 
I could hear it getting closer and closer until it was unbearable. At this point in time, I'm still lying in bed with my arms on the side. As I go to raise them to cover my ears from the noise, I feel this tremendous pressure on my torso. And I could not move. I started to panic. My skin began, my skin began to get goosebumps. And I began to feel very itchy. I got up and tears were running down my eyes and I left with this feeling of sorrow and began to cry. I don't know why. Maybe because I felt so close to death. I could not sleep for the rest of the night. I ended up telling my mom and she said a prayer for me. Then about a week later, I had the same experience and I told a pastor about it and he said that it was not good and I should pray for help. One day I had the courage to tell my friend what was going on. We were at his house and I was just sitting around and I began the conversation by asking him if anything scary had happened to him before. He said yes. And I said things had happened to me as well. He requested that he go first and what he said next sent waves of chills down my spine. It about made me cry too. He told me the exact same event that had been happening to him, word for word. Literally scared me and I told him that what had been happening to me as well. Eventually I did my research and found out what all had been going on. The town in South Carolina I used to live in was a battleground and ever since then I've been connected with these supernatural experiences. There you go. So, some people that experience these things, are they, is they have like their initial experience and then they kind of can pick up things easier from then on? Or is it just like, like this? Because he said that because it was a battleground and ever since then he's had experiences, is that pretty common? common for people to have the same experiences no what i mean is is it common for somebody to have an experience and then they're more sensitive to paranormal from then on i don't know i i think it it may open some more people up to be more aware of what's going on around them just because you have a lot of folks who with so many letters they begin with at first i didn't believe in ghosts or anything and then sure shit hits the fan and you know uh something's living in their room and then suddenly they're much more aware of all the weird and dark things that are going on around them. So I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if, if it opens. I think it depends what it is. If you're opening a door to something and it is something dark and demonic or something, and essentially you're letting it in. Uh, I just think you're seeing more of it because it was let in. Um, in other cases, if it's completely unrelated events... I think you may just be more aware, more accepting of what it is, and not just writing it off as a wind or or something else. Sure, okay. that's my opinion on it, anyway. Now, I just didn't know if you're more prone to it after you've had one for sure experience. I think it's interesting in that story where he said that his friend uh, told him that he was having the same experiences um, and the same, you know, almost the same story, almost like that. Almost, you know, it sounds like whatever it was, kind of repeated itself in some sort of a pattern you know to multiple people Mm -hmm. that's interesting I mean it would be really interesting if um, we had ever got a a story here that we read and then someone else in the same area ends up writing and going this exact same thing happened to me like the same events or or very close to the same sort of events yeah you know same pattern just because 
I could see that happening. You, you do have stories of, of paranormal where the reference I always go back to is the one that I had heard of so frequently when I lived in, in Wausau, Wisconsin, of this woman that was carrying a baby up and down a stairwell. Granted, that's a very brief experience. If you have it, you're seeing a woman carrying a baby up and down a stairwell. Ghostly experience nonetheless, but multiple people have had the same experience. So it's not like it's a different ghost every time or, or you know, entity that's doing it. But it's interesting when it's a more drawn-out experience. It's like, yes, I, I, he, he saw the thing in the woods, and then they saw the thing in his bedroom. And the, what's interesting about that one to me is that the woods almost sounds like, okay, it was a soldier ghost. The one in his bedroom sounds like some sort of weird demonic entity hanging out on the ceiling. Yeah. It almost sounds like it could be an unrelated experience, but if his friend had the same sort of thing, I don't know. Well, I don't know either. I mean, I guess I'm I'm unclear. Were the friends together when they saw the thing in the woods, or were they just? Is this just separate experiences altogether? I think they were. There was it was totally separate experiences. Okay. Because when he was playing, he was playing ball with his brother or something, went in there by himself. Okay. And then the friend, I guess, had the same sort of experience. Maybe it's something to do with the area. Oh yeah, very much so with the the uh, the battleground. Yeah. I don't know. Dark experience, nonetheless. If you have a real ghost story, you can write into us. 855-853-4802 is our phone number. If you want to call in your real ghost story, we would absolutely love to hear it. And of course, we ask you to please share the show. Let a friend know about it. And uh, hey, if you got some uh, a couple extra seconds after you're done listening to today's episode, some stars on the iTunes or Stitcher or whatever platform you're listening to us on. It helps us grow, helps more folks know about the show, and uh, gets you a better show uh, every single time we deliver one to you here at Real Ghost Stories Online. So, for Jenny Bruski, I am Tony Bruski, and thank you for listening to another episode of Real Ghost Stories Online.